one of the best acoustic guitar players on the planet right now, according to Guitar World in 2020, Will McNichol. How are you doing, mate? Hey, Ben. Nice to see you, man. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, as I can see, you've got a uh, an entire studio behind you, which is very um, official. And, okay, this is a guy who does music for a living. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to have a space to, to work in, you know. I mean, calling it a studio is maybe a little bit grand. It, it is a spare room in my house, but I've tried okay. to tried to kind of get it set up in a way that allows me to do all the work that I need to do. Um, but it's never never quite as easy as, you, uh, as you'd as you hope it would be, particularly when you've got a two-year-old running around the place, you know. Oh, okay. So I guess it's a case of having to... I'm recording stuff, but then having a two-year-old running around the place, trying not to press buttons and all that sort of thing. Yes, I- exactly that. And I try my best <laughs> to find the windows of time in the day yes, where I can do that kind of work. You know, his his nap time is usually a good good period of time, but also just at night um, when hopefully he's gone down um, for for his sleep. Um, yeah, finding those windows of silence is increasingly <laughs> difficult these days. So from guitarist to guitarist, I know it's very cliche to ask, but do you remember when you first picked up a guitar in general, the first memory in your mind yeah i mean well, i started playing guitar when i was six years old it was all uh, classical stuff back at school when we had an opportunity to learn an instrument a few friends um and myself just thought that guitar would be the coolest option uh <laughs> yeah. it was really as simple as that but i think i was really one of the only ones who properly stuck with it because i mean at that age i mean you're six years old guitar you know it's pretty tough on the hands you know pretty tough on the fingers yeah. so it's not not as easy as you might hope it would be but I, I really enjoyed it and I just, you know, never stopped since. From personal experience, I was three when I first picked up my brother's, who was 16 at the time. So he had like a big full-size dreadnought. Mm. So it was me just trying to get my fingers around the uh, instrument in the first place. So at the age, you're just like, I want to learn to be trying to mine just to impress someone. And with fingers, obviously it's a lot harder to play compared to standard guitar stuff. So to want to do that did you have weird looks from people to say okay this kid wants to learn fingerstyle guitar compared to the regular stuff that we get taught when we first start learning yeah so i mean i think that when when i was at school when we when we first started i mean classical guitar was the norm um okay. that was the the guitar that was offered really that was the style of playing that was offered so yeah uh, at that age it, there wasn't really much to to choose from uh, and it was only, you know, I went through the classical grade system over many years. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it in a way that you enjoy a, a subject at school that you enjoy. You know, I didn't feel a particular sense of ownership over the process so much as I just enjoyed that kind of learning experience and being guided along that pathway. Uh, and it really wasn't until I was in my early to mid teens uh, when I was kind of exposed to, I suppose, that slightly more contemporary way of applying that fingerstyle um, technique onto the steel string guitar, for example, um, and seeing what other amazing sounds and textures the uh, steel string guitar can offer. And it was a guitarist called Antonio Forcioni, actually, who was the one I saw when I was, I think, about 14 or 15 years old, who just completely blew my perceptions of the instrument out of the water. And that was kind of what sparked my creativity and a more, more of a sense of ownership over the kind of guitar playing that I really wanted to explore um, alongside the classical. Um, so you mentioned school. 
And so we are both alumni of Corfe Hill School. Um, mm. And so I'm assuming that you were heavily involved in the music school department in general, the school shows and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, I was. Um, certainly ended up in the band pit for a couple of the school shows that were put on. Yeah. Um, but that, that was me playing um, electric guitar and doing chord work and that kind of thing, which is, which is fine. Uh, yeah. But, you know, there were certainly other guitarists and bands which were, who were much cooler than I was and <laughs> were able to do that kind of the funk <laughs> stuff and all of that yeah. you know, great blues playing and all that kind of thing. But I was always more kind of classically and acoustically inclined. And, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed working with um, other musicians at the school and other people in different year groups who had particular skill sets. I mean, there was a, a great um, drummer percussionist called Tom Francis, who I really enjoyed playing with back then. And also um, his sister, Emily Francis, a wonderful musician who's, you know, doing exceptional work at the moment, um, particularly with her project, the Emily Francis Trio. In fact, we've just oh. kind of collaborated on a, on a project. So the name rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. So, so there, there's some great musicians, and and I just enjoyed, you know, working with them. But I at, at that time I was really into composing my own material on the steel string guitar, and whilst the majority of what I did was solo based, there was certainly plenty of opportunities to collaborate with some of the other wonderful musicians in that school at the time. And so then, did you go on to university to then? become more qualified in the classical guitar style and that sort of thing? Yeah, so I mean, I, I didn't actually go to uni to study music. Um, okay. I went to university to study design, specifically product design. Sure. Um, and that was because, of, well, two reasons, really. One, I really enjoyed, you know, the design process. Uh and I really enjoyed just, you know, the world of design, really. Uh, and I also thought it would be nice to have another string to my bow should the music thing not really end up working <laughs> out for me. But whilst I was doing the that degree, which is at uh, Plymouth University, I was also doing diplomas with Trinity College London in the classical guitar thing. So I took that as high as you could yeah. in terms of diplomas. So I did the associate licentiate and fellowship in classical guitar playing, which was good fun. The, it, well, I mean, it was hard work, but I mean, the, the, well, yeah, the, it's hard work, the, the, in my final year of university, I was doing my fellowship with Trinity at the same time. And as a result, became a bit of a hermit because it was just was so say, much to, to do it. In, in yeah. One go. To do both of them at the same time, that must've been yeah, quite a, I guess a blur. Mm, yeah, it was, it was pretty intense, but it was, it was all good. Uh, so, and also when I was at, um, Plymouth University, I was also able to swap out some of the design modules for music modules for the ones that I kind of took a bit of an interest in. So mm -hmm. yeah, it was always a bit of a mix of the two. Yeah. Okay. And so then well, one of like the big challenges in life in general is how you go from the school structure in general or university experience to then actually going on to begin a career in whatever you want to do. So how did you as a classical guitarist start out in what you are doing now after you left university? How did it all begin? So I, mean, I was kind of gigging from a relatively young age and cut my teeth on the kind of gigging circuit under my own name with my own kind of pieces, if you like, yeah. um, in my teenage years prior to going to university. Um, and that was my first taste of being, for want of a better word, 
a professional musician in a gigging context, <laughs> even though it was still, yeah, yeah. you know, there were, were little gigs, but they were really lovely gigs. And quite a lot of those, I can't really remember why, to be honest, but it, they ended up being in Portsmouth for quite a lot of them, just because I think they, the Portsmouth was quite well set up, had a nice kind of scene there. I met a couple of um, lovely people who were very supportive and were happy to kind of get me involved in some of the gigs. Um, gigs there. So, so that kind of gave me a little bit of a taste of the performing life. And I rather enjoyed it. And that, that continued, you know, continued when I went to university. I mean, I had a residency at one of the venues in Plymouth when I was there. I gigged around yeah. whilst I was doing my degree there. Um, in my final year, yeah, in my final year, um, I entered the um, UK Acoustic Guitarist of the Year competition run by Guitarist magazine uh, and won that. And that was a good um, kind of door opener into yeah. other opportunities, festivals, workshops, masterclasses, and um, being kind of uh, having an, an agent brought on to help me with the, the booking of UK tours. So that's how it kind of expanded, I suppose, um, from relatively humble beginnings. So for the guitar magazine, was that purely performing to an audience? How did that all work? I mean, it was a fairly um, straightforward competition, really. The, yeah. the first part of it was you had to email in the track that you thought would be good. You had to record, like, send a recording in, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then they compiled a, a long list that then got boiled down to a short list, all based on this recording. Uh, and then they boiled it down to a final, which was at the Southbank Centre in London. And they invited the people um, who were on that list of finalists. Oh, man, I think... I, I can't quite remember, but I think it might have been six players that it boiled down to. And then you were judged by a panel and in front of an audience at these at these finals and you just performed the piece. And in, in a, in a, it's a ma- it was a massive venue, like Queen Elizabeth Hall yeah. in, in the Southwark Centre. It was a, it's a big venue. It was like at that time, like the biggest venue I played. And so I just had a lot of fun playing guitar in it because I'd never sat, never heard my guitar sound as massive as that before. <laughs> so that was just quite an experience. And I, I know this is, it's such a kind of... Um, stereotypical thing to say like I genuinely was had no expectation of winning the thing and I, that's the honest truth and I and I was um stood up at the end in in the line and they were announcing the winner and I just I was literally thinking to myself well this has been a lovely day yeah. I've had a nice yeah. time <laughs> I've met some lovely people heard some great yeah. music played my guitar on a, on a big venue what a lovely day and then then I ended up winning it and that was obviously just a genuine shock and and, and obviously a, a lovely thing but you know yeah. music competitions are inherently problematic in the sense that it is at the end of the day so subjective um yeah. but i just got lucky on the day and and that that but that was nice and whilst i i don't think music competitions are to be given a huge amount of weight but there's certainly a lot to be said for um the doors and opportunities that they can open um and i certainly benefited from that at that point in my career so how old were you when you won that? So I must have been 21, um, and that was in 2011. Okay. Um, you mentioned as a result, it was the breakthrough that you needed with an agent and that sort of thing. Um, was it then a case of, I guess, seeing what came in or trying to do an album or something like that to try and capitalize on the competition win? I'd been recording... Uh, myself for for many years before that just because I enjoyed the process of it I mean starting out really poor like just literally plugging my guitar into my computer and just playing it was you know 
terrible sound quality, but it just was yeah. it was just fun. And I would palm or I would make a CD and palm it off to my family members whether they wanted one or not. And that was just all part of this process. I just enjoy creating things. Um and uh, whilst I was at university, I kind of put together another kind of recording at a, uh, at the time at a proper studio in, in Plymouth, which was uh, great fun. And off the back of the competition, yeah, just kept writing music, kept releasing albums and would tour off the back of those. And, and my agent at the time was extremely helpful, um, a chap called Rob McGee, who worked for the agency Electric Harmony. And it was just incredibly helpful in terms of getting tours organized because it's a lot of work it is a lot of work and so you mentioned that you'd been composing your own music for years and years and years so i think like you know with regular music you write songs with lyrics on and then it all just comes from there so i guess how do you begin composing fingerstyle how does the idea come like how do you decide on a key how do you design yeah. on a melody mm. how does it all come together yeah it's a good question because i mean you know that question of how do you compose or how do you even approach the start of a composition i mean in any um format whatever it's a good question because it's it, there's so many different answers to it obviously because it's different for everyone i mean, i think a consistent yeah. element of it is to be inspired and that helps and for me as i mentioned earlier seeing this guitarist antonio fortioni play that was inspiring to me because I heard the guitar being played in ways that I never be never seen or heard it being played before, and I heard heard it being used in different styles of music that I'd never heard it being played before. I was kind of exposed to different techniques, and just a whole world opened up to me, which then opened up listening to different players uh, outside of the classical realm that I had been kind of brought up within. Uh, and so I just thought to myself, you know what, I would like to try a little bit of this. I'd like to try this out. <laughs> and all it, my very early comp compositions, I mean, they were just little musical explorations. They were just me trying stuff out, whether that be a musical idea or a technical idea. I was, it literally was just, I saw Antonio doing something. And I was like, can I, can I do something similar here? Can I, can I take that technique and do something with it? And then slowly but surely, um, the actual idea behind, you know, creating music around, some kind of concept or imagery became more the idea. And I, I, over years, just started developing what I suppose would be described as a compositional voice. It's something that I, it's something that I could call my own. And I think that was yeah. something that I really loved because whilst I really enjoyed and still do enjoy the classical guitar and the repertoire, it never really felt like it was mine. You know, I kind, I kind of could reinterpret and play and make these pieces as relevant to me as possible but they never truly felt like mine and the thing the nice thing about composing and the thing that i felt utterly you know i found it utterly addictive was creating stuff that had never been created before it, whether it was any good or not was kind of beside the point <laughs> but it, it never existed before and it was mine and i was yeah. like this is kind of fun yeah and I loved the process of exploring and I loved the process of creating. And as a result of that love for those particular things, I haven't really stopped creating music ever since. Yeah. And as a result, you brought out about five albums in the process of you creating stuff. Because mm. um, I'm aware. So your first one came in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. 
Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it depends on where you start this. It's- because as, <laughs> as, as I mentioned, like I, I kind of had started years before. I mean, I think that the first kind of like public properly released one was I think about 2011 um, or somewhere around about there, uh, 2010, 2011, I think. Um, and then since then, I I've, think I've had a new release of some kind, whether it be an album or a single or an EP. I mean, if not, I mean, almost like every other year since then. Um, so it's, it's quite a total. I, mean, I actually don't know what the total is, to be frank. <laughs> I, 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 it, it doesn't it doesn't really matter to me so much as it yeah, does. Yeah. I just I enjoy the the process of creating. I mean, I, my creative output is certainly slowed as I've got older. Um, and I think part of that is to do with just how I approach the process, but also just time constraints and being a professional yeah. musician. It's amazing how little guitar playing can happen in that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So how do you make a fingers on guitar playing album? Does it come from inspiration? Do you have an idea of a story you want to tell with the music you're writing? Is it all related in some way? What goes into creating a fingerstyle album? I mean, I've had a few different approaches to this over the years. I mean, some some of my early ones were just simply a collection of pieces that I had written at approximately the same time. Um, Some of the other ones were more conceptual. Some of the other ones were more specifically styled. So, for example, I did an EP of music inspired by my tours in China. um, And that was all kind of like under the umbrella of music inspired by both the music I heard over there, but Mm -hmm. also experiences I had during the tours. Um, So, I mean, look, if I can boil it down, I mean, my my thing with composition personally has has so often been imagery driven. So I will try and capture some feeling um, surrounding imagery quite often i mean whether what that image is 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 massively varied but that often helps me give a piece of music purpose and direction so you know for example i have a piece called dragonflies frogs and bumblebees and that is about dragonflies frogs and bumblebees you know pretty straightforward stuff but yeah. I mean, and, and the idea there was simply write a theme that aptly describes a dragonfly write a theme that aptly describes a bumblebee and one that aptly describes a frog and get them to play together and create a little world. And that kind of thing has often been the way that I've approached music. If I'm writing a tune, I've got one called Lighthouse. I'm trying to capture something about the imagery of a lighthouse. Um, sometimes it's about following some kind of character um, around the day. So it's very, it's very visual based, not all the time, but it is quite often based around visuals and imagery that will be going on in my head at the time of writing i'm doing a bit of spotify with you something that that does interest me just from not knowing anything about it is how people create their album art oh, okay yeah sure yeah yeah and from seeing yours they're all very original and eclectic so mm. is that something that you do or something that happens as a result of the creative process of the album does someone else do it how does the album art come together yeah, I mean, I love working with illustrators and capturing something within the music. So, you know, for example, I mean, I've got an album called, or I mentioned it, Dragonflies, Frogs and Bumblebees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the that's the title track of that particular album. And the album art is precisely that. It's um, an illustration of a, of a typical English garden um, with these critters 
you know, going about their day around a pond. Um, so that kind of captures that. The the Rain on Qingming Bridge, which is the China-inspired EP, um, that was illustrated by a Chinese artist who lived just across from the bridge, um, which he illustrated for me and then that was scanned in and I used that for the artwork for this and what was really lovely about that was on a on a subsequent tour I was able to go over with the disc that his artwork had been used for and give him a copy of it so it was quite a nice kind of like cyclical journey that that kind of um thing went on so I I do quite like the idea of capturing something that has occurred within the music on the album um artwork you know yeah, so you mentioned how you've done your fair share of tours and gigs and how you've supported a number of known people in the music space. And the one that stuck out to me was Mumford and Sons. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that was yeah. Um, that was quite fun. I mean, that was before Mumford yeah. and Sons were, ma- were were as big as they... So it was Mumford and Sons before they were Mumford and Sons. Okay, nice. Yeah, well, they, it was Mumford and Sons it, just as they were becoming the kind of superstar like bef- just before they were becoming yeah. the superstars that they were and it was a lovely it yeah. was a lovely gig and it but it was yeah. what was what was really funny about it is that it was just it was very understated yeah yeah and obviously now they're stadium fillers so it, it, you do you know as many gigging musicians do you cross paths with people at those early stages and some of them end up becoming these absolute you know worldwide superstars and it's just a, just a fascinating thing. And the, the thing that I find really interesting and quite nice about the whole thing is that, you know, you can often forget when if when an artist gets to the level that, for example, Mumford & Sons um, got to and, and are at, you can forget that they went through that early stage. Mm-hmm. You know, they did the thing. They did the, the early gigging circuit. They did the small venues. They built that fan base in a very old-fashioned way in the early days, you know. Um, so... Yeah, it's quite nice in the same way as, you know, someone like um, Ed Sheeran did, you know, just gigged and gigged yeah. and gigged and gigged. Gigged and gigged. So, so yeah, that was, that was where, where that came from. And so when you look back at the tours you've done and the places that you've been to with all these musicians, which ones stick out? Which ones do you remember and just think, I did that? Um, so in terms of working with other musicians, is that what you were saying? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I, when I first worked alongside Antonio Forcioni, that was quite a big moment for me personally, because he had been the person who had sparked my creative journey all those years previously. Um, so when the opportunity came to work with him and the opportunity came via the London Guitar Summit in uh, at King's Place in London, which is organised by the IGF, International Guitar Foundation. They reached out and said, look, we're doing this Guitar Summit in London. It's kind of a collection of concerts and um, uh, workshops. And we usually pair a well-known player um, with someone who can help them uh, tutor and craft a like a workshop. Um, that will be valuable for people. Uh, we and they were like, "Oh, we've got Antonio lined up for this. Would you be up for it?" And I was like, "Well, yes, I am up for it." <laughs> yes, so please, thank you very much. Um, so uh, when I first met Antonio, it was very surreal because yeah. for me, he he really had been like the biggest kind of influence on me as a musician mm-hmm. up to that point. And I went to London. He picked me up in his car, drove drove me to his house to plan this workshop, and and I, I found the whole experience very surreal. Because on one hand, at that time, you know, I was 
you know, for want of a better phrase, a bit of a fanboy of Antonio. <laughs> I, I, I just, I'd listened to his stuff so much. I'd seen him in, yeah. in concert t- like countless times. Um, so I really knew his music inside out and I, I really found it very inspiring. So on one hand, there was that kind of element of like, I'm a fan. And this is, this is a very, you know, amazing experience for a fan to have. Um, but on the other hand, I was a professional there to do a job. Uh, yeah. And I was there to work with him, create a workshop based around his music and all that kind of stuff. And so, since then, you know, we've just become good mates and we've worked together yeah. plenty of times since then um, in various different contexts, whether it be performance or workshop or whatever. Uh, and so, so that, that was, that was a, a lovely thing, but, and also just the, the early experiences I had at guitar festivals where I was performing alongside people who I really found who had really been an instrumental part of my kind of in, inspiration as a composer, all of that stuff was very surreal and lovely. Um, and it's just, it's a small world, you know, it's a small community, this fingerstyle community, and it's a very lovely world and it's very mutually supportive. And you realize that these people who you as a teenager were kind of putting up on a pedestal, you know, they they're just really lovely, nice, normal people <laughs> who are just trying normal to do what people. everyone else is trying to do and just have a nice life sharing music. Yeah. Um, so it, it being, being a part of that world was a, a, a lovely kind of thing when it first started happening. And I feel very you know, fortunate to be a small part of that world now. That's cool. And so now with performing live, um, no one is invincible from something going wrong from mm-hmm. a mistake you make live on stage to something going wrong off stage. Um, do you have any memorable mistakes that have gone on when you're playing generally? Um, I mean, there's been a few things, obviously, over the over the years yeah. that have been interesting to manage. I sometimes use a, a a loop pedal on stage, and quite quite often that that won't necessarily behave itself. You, you, I say behave itself as if it has any control over how it's being used. It's, well, it's user error. Oh, of course uh, it is. And 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 um, so so that that has sometimes provided some quite uh, fruity moments. Um, other things, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm sure, like you know, it might snap a string once in a blue moon and have to deal yeah. with that, but that's kind of fine. Uh, the, the things that I find tricky, I mean, obviously, it's quite often it's the psychological side of performing, as it so often is, you know, yeah. um, and what can go on inside your head, that inner game that you play uh, with yourself when you're performing, is the thing that always needs to be managed. And it's amazing what things can kind of. Uh, impact that you know one of the things that i had to deal with on one of my tours in china was um you know performing with food poisoning and that is challenging oh, okay. you know like it's it's yeah. uh it completely removes you removes yourself from the moment and all you're panicking about is like, am i going to be able to get through this without being sick yeah. um so um those are the things that really toughened me up <laughs> in terms of being able to just kind of rely on your practice rely on your experience to still yeah. deliver a really solid and good performance despite the fact that you're going through a bit of an internal nightmare like you you, you can still do it um much as it's challenging and obviously way less enjoyable it's still possible to do it um because at the end of the day you're there to do a job and i was just doing my job yeah the performing in China in itself is probably quite a whirlwind experience in itself. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a very good way of describing it. Actually, it <laughs> it, it, it was a bit of a whirlwind um, experience yeah. and um, one that I found to be 
completely addictive. It's it's it was an an amazing thing. I did, I did three tours over there, and yeah, just despite the food poisoning and it was just the most wonderful thing, man. I mean, it really is. It's just an, an, yeah. an amazing country. It's, it's always it always finds itself in the news for the for the negatives in terms of the the, ma- the macro political and everything else. But at the mm-hmm. end, when you're actually this is the thing that I love about music. It was the same when I went and performed in Zimbabwe. You know, like you, you end yeah. up working with people who are just they just they're just normal people on the ground. They have nothing to do with everything else in the same way yeah. as so often in this country we have nothing to do with everything that's going on in Westminster and like and and, and you kind of you think well look all, all they they're trying to do is, is the same as anyone else in those scenarios and they're just trying to um you know create lovely environments in which to share music and um that was certainly my experience like the people on the ground who were just involved in that kind of day to day of um a musical life um they no matter where you are in the world there's a consistency to it which is really lovely and it makes you feel at home even when you don't even share a word of the same language, you know? Hello. Just interrupting this episode to ask you a quick favour. If you like what you're listening to, give it a rating, leave a review and subscribe to the podcast feed. It helps more than you could imagine. Now, back to the episode. So you mentioned now that you've been able to add multiple strings to your bow with doing workshops and that sort of thing so has that been to help people improve in their own fingerstyle playing or just in general to improve musicianship uh well i mean the workshops that i deliver um are you know quite specific in terms of um the style of guitar that they cater for i mean it's all to do with you know fingerstyle playing and, and nowadays over the years i mean I've, I've been able to specialize more and more and more so usually the people who come to my workshops will be aware of my work and and mm-hmm. want to know a little bit more about my particular approach to it which is you know broadly speaking it's combining classical with the the more contemporary steel string and, yeah. and that kind of realm which is you know growing all the time and people will come on on, on to these workshops because I, I attended lots of workshops when i was younger you know and i, I absolutely love them it was some of the best musical experiences i had with these workshops and it wasn't just because of the tutoring that i received which was always really great and very inspiring players like stuart ryan thomas lieb just exceptional and inspiring but but it was more than just that it was it was the experience of sharing um with your fellow attendees it was it was it was a space to really just jump two feet in to this world for which you have a great passion um so you know in in your day-to-day life you might have this passion that you don't necessarily have an out, outlet for with other people in your immediate vicinity, right? Because it's a little bit of a niche. The lovely thing about workshops is it draws those people from all over the country into one place and you can just share yeah. that passion in a really, really lovely, lovely way. Um, so the workshops that I deliver are obviously the, the, the core of it, the centre of it is to do with exploring music together. Of course, it's to do with, you know, hopefully adding elements that can improve um, a player's ability, both technically and musically, but also it's providing a space in which people can just really throw themselves into that world that they love, learn some new music, share some new music, um, and just generally geek out for um, as long as it is, whether whether it be like a a one-hour workshop as part of a gig or a festival, or whether it be a full day, one-day workshop, or whether it be a a full week residential workshop, like the the kind of concept behind them are all pretty pretty similar, really. 
So where's the most far-flung country that you've been to to deliver a workshop? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've done, you know, I did, did workshops um, as part of my time in, in China. Um, I've done, done them around Europe. I've done them in Zimbabwe. Um, basically, wherever I go. I mean, I, I really enjoy, I really enjoy them. Um, it's one of my, one of the my favorite things actually is you know both the process of organizing and structuring a workshop but also just delivering it I find it you know a really enjoyable part of it uh, the interesting thing is when you when you're doing it in a country where all the participants aren't native English speakers yeah. um, and you have <laughs> yeah. to work you, you know sometimes have to work with a translator and that's a really fascinating yeah. thing when you work with a translator mm-hmm. in those contexts because it really gets you to think about what you're saying and you really need to make sure that you're explaining things in the most concise and clear way. Yeah. Um, and it really got me thinking about how I deliver workshops in English, you know, because you just think, well, am I, how clear am I actually being here? Am I adding in too much extra stuff? Or So it, that was really interesting. And, and the translator would kind of bring me up on certain things as like, you know, what does that mean? Or that's a really, there's lots of kind of Englishisms or like things yeah. that are very specific to you know, little colloquial things that just slip in. And, and you realize that for someone who doesn't speak English, they're just, they're just insane. Like there's little phrases like, oh, you know, that is a completely different kettle of fish. You know, what what, what on earth does that mean? Like, and, and you just, it just slips into conversation. It slips into something you say mm-hmm. without a word of thought. And you see your translator's eyebrows furrow. You think, sorry, you just said, said something about fish. Uh, and I don't really understand what you, what you mean. Something to do with a kettle, like a kettle, which yeah. you, you boil water for a cup of tea and fish. And so you think, okay, yeah, let's rein in the Englishisms here because that's yeah, not yeah. necessarily going to make your point any clearer. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that the workshops have also improved how you are as a performer or a composer as well? Definitely. It's one of, one of those things where when, whenever you kind of in those circumstances and you allow yourself space to think about these things in a different way, yeah. You know, you do learn about it, you know, quite often in the composition process, particularly when I first started, I didn't think about my pieces being played by anyone else other than me. I just wrote for my own benefit, wrote for my own musical satisfaction. Right. But then people started learning my stuff and then they started asking questions about my stuff. And then I was like, oh, man, like, yeah. and they say, well, why did you do that C sharp minor seven voicing like this when you mm-hmm. could have done it like this? And it would have been a lot easier. And I was like, well, I don't know, man. Like, <laughs> like, go for it. Do you do your voicing of C sharp minor seven if you want to? That that you know, that's yeah. you, all power to you. It, it, the, the honest truth is, I didn't think about it. I did yeah. not think about, it. think about it. Nowadays, and as a as a result of you know constructing workshops and tutoring more and everything else, I do think about it more. And it's interesting how you become more active in those decisions. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a a better or a worse thing. I just find it interesting because, yeah. you know, it's funny how I compose pieces now and I think to myself as I'm writing it, oh, someone's going to bring me up on this. I know they are. They're going to say, why did you do that, Will? Why have you made it like that? Why have you made it more difficult? Um, yeah. So, it, and it's just, it's a funny, funny little thing. I'd, I'd never want that to become a, uh, like a hindrance in the composition process. There's never, never a reason not to follow up a musical idea just because someone's going to question it. But it's just it's just an interesting thing that's popped into my head more recently, yeah. So how did that transition into having your own college? Well, that's a great example of a lockdown project, right? That you know, it's amazing. It's amazing what a global pandemic can 
do in order to kind of free up time to work on things that you hadn't had time to work on up until that point right yeah and the college like you know the the beginnings of it like were, were bubbling around in my head for quite a while before I had any opportunity to actually make it happen and and prior to the pandemic I, mean, I was just so busy performing that it just was never mm. never on my radar to be to have the time to, to dump, jump into it but hey presto along comes covid and I have time <laughs> so I I kind of launched myself into that in 2020 based around this very very simple thing like I realized that I had collected and created a vast amount of material over the years, mm-hmm. whether that be compositions, tutoring resources, exercises, videos, like just a whole host of stuff. And it would yeah. always be almost like a one and done thing. It was like I used it for something. Let's say it was a workshop and then it would be put into a cupboard and forgotten about. And I was like, well, that seems like a bit of a shame because you end up with all of this material that's just not doing anything. And I wanted to give it a home. So it started off as being a resource for my online students, separate to the college. It was just when I was doing online lessons, I thought I had this thing called the library, which was just this collection of everything. So that when we were doing our online sessions, I could say, oh, by the way, we've been talking about this technique. I've got some resources on that that you can look at. So that's how it started. And then I was like, okay, well, let's let's take this further. And you know, I was like, okay, well, with regards to kind of how you structure like an online offering, I found giving it a bit of, structure by imagining a digital version of a of an actual college because you think well you know what does the college have will it have a library that's where you keep all of your kind of written resources that's where all the written resources go where do you go and watch stuff are you going to watch it in a lecture theater so all the video content went there um etc and then there's the common room which is like the social aspect of it (laughs) where people share their own work and we do uh, monthly zoom meets where we get together and share music and answer questions so it kind of just grew gradually and organically and what's been really lovely about it and the thing that I I didn't necessarily think would happen, but a, a lovely community has grown from it. Um, yeah. And it chimes in with exactly with what we've just been discussing regarding workshops is you get people mm-hmm. who have this passion, but it's a bit of a niche. It's not like football where you can go and find, a, you know, like a, a team to go and play with or like a, a sports center to go and play football. Like that's easy. Like yeah, if yeah. you want, if you're wanting to go and find people who are well into instrumental fingerstyle acoustic guitar, <laughs> like that's not as easy. You're not going to find that yeah. in your local leisure center. So like you, like, so people are kind of are quite, I sometimes quite isolated in this passion. So, and hence workshops brought people together, but then you remove the geographical challenge by doing stuff online. So we would have yeah. these Zoom meets with with people in the college where you'd have people from the Philippines, from Germany, from Canada, from the UK, um, all coming together, sharing this same passion and inspiring one another in the process, which was just, a, has been the most wonderful thing to see grow. Um, and that's been the thing that has been, so enjoyable for me whilst the vast majority of people use the college in a if if not for that like so they would just come on and they would use it for their own benefit or whatever that's absolutely fine the thing is i wanted to give people who wanted that extra kind of level of contact the facility to have it um and there's been it has become this little core of like people who are, are really inspiring one another which is a really lovely thing i assume that the patreon was a result of the pandemic as well well the patreon actually came after the college because 
basically the college is, is very much a thing where if you're, if, you know, if you're a guitarist and you like what I do, then it's for you to learn from. Right. But yeah. it, it's not like there's, there's a lot of people who enjoy my work who aren't guitarists. They're just, they're just people who, who enjoy music um, yeah. or like enjoy what I do. And they have no, I mean, they have no designs on becoming a guitarist or whatever it is. So it, it, it was basically down to that kind of um, concept of just giving people methods of supporting you if they want to you know it, yeah. and and some people did want to which is really very lovely it's not it's not a big thing and i don't i don't yeah. push it nearly as much as i push the college and it's yeah but it, it's there and it's nice and it's just another little way of um it's more about me as an artist than it is about me as a tutor so it'll be all to do with my creative projects and giving behind yeah. the scenes stuff to, to those and early access and little perks and all the rest of it. it's yeah, all those yeah. kind of things you know that patreon's quite good for so did the people on Patreon get early access to your latest album, The Botanists? So, so that was it. I mean, my, my most recent thing, The Botanists, that's a, that's a single. And I, I released that just um, just recently. And, and yeah, so part of that was um, the Patreons got it early. And, the, and they, also, they also just heard much more about the process of how it came about. Um, they get that kind of behind the scenes of like um, what, what actually goes into the work behind releasing that. And and the same is it, at the moment I'm I'm doing this collaborative project with Emily Francis who I met who, who I mentioned earlier, and and again like the Patreon folks are just getting a lot of behind the scenes like because you know if you're not involved in that Patreon and you're just enjoying my work and you you will just see the finished article appear, and it and and it will be like ah there it just came out of thin air but obviously no it's taken a shed load of work <laughs> and um the the work itself is actually quite interesting so so people in the Patreon kind of quite like that. Um, so I just pop up little behind the scenes things and show people how it's been progressing. Yeah. So what was the inspiration behind the botanist? Yeah. So the botanist came about in a slightly interesting manner. I was approached a couple of years ago, maybe last, I'm trying to remember now. Anyway, sometime in the last couple of years by a French film composer called Jean-Charles Wolfarth, who was, uh, does some really lovely, beautiful silent films. Um, and the, the emphasis is on the music that um, is attached to those. And he was going through a phase of exploring musical options for an upcoming film. And he asked me to create some music for a portion of one of um, his upcoming movie. Uh, and it was a 15 minute or so segment, which followed a 19th century botanist around about his day studying plants and flowers in amongst beautiful surroundings of like grand gardens and amazing greenhouses and you know, it, it wasn't, I don't know what gardens and they used in France, but it very much had the vibe of Kew Gardens in London. You can imagine that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. So I started life as a guitar and clarinet duet. Um, and we, we explored it a little bit and he decided he wanted to go down a different musical kind of route for his film, which is obviously totally fine. Um, but what it, what it ended up leaving me with was a load of musical ideas that I really was actually rather enjoying. And so I thought to myself, well, look, let, instead of these going to waste, I would love to take these and, and run with them. So I basically, you know, I had written about 15 minutes worth of music for this and I boiled it all down into a solo guitar composition of about four and a half minutes, I think it is, or so. Uh, and that that's, that's it. It, it. Again, you know, talking about inspirations for compositions, you know, this is very visual. It was literally describing and uh, this botanist as he went about his day 
And so there's elements of themes around wonder at the natural world, you know, beauty of um, plants and studying them um, in their various different forms and contexts, whether that be under a microscope or whether it be a flower pressing or whether it be in a greenhouse or in the outside in the gardens, all of that stuff kind of came together. And that's where the music came from. Okay, so fingerstyle, even though it's sort of known about, it's not completely mainstream, as in you probably won't find a fingerstyle piece in the UK top 40, that sort of thing. Of um, <laughs> though, from being a guitarist myself, and you watch things and you hear things, like there is a whole section of YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, and that is filled with all these fingerstyle guitar players. Mm. Um, like one in particular is a YouTuber called Andrew Foy. Um, and he mm. is, I think, from the Philippines. And he's been doing fingerstyle for years. Um, I'm just trying to think. Yeah, because it's Andrew Foy. And there's a guy called Eddie Van der Meer, mm-hmm. who has like millions of subscribers on YouTube. Mm. And my Instagram feed is completely full of people doing fingerstyle versions of mainstream music and that sort of thing. Um, mm. Do you see with the rise of online creators through these platforms that fingerstyle is beginning to enter the mainstream? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's, it's, it's exploded over the last kind of 10, 15 years. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, there's some players, there's obviously there's the online side of it. Um, and viral videos have certainly brought fingerstyle to the attention of many more people than um, they used to, and, and particularly the ones that gather the attention of the of the, of the arrangements of pop songs or whatever they might be, or you know um, classical pieces done in a kind of a Picasso acoustic style, and um, that obviously has a broader appeal because people are like, oh, I know that tune, and as yeah, a result, yeah. um, they're like, oh, that's cool that that guy's doing it all himself on the guitar, uh, yeah. and that, and that's great, you know. I think that. Um, you know, it's it's lovely that the that the acoustic guitar is being seen more and more as a solo instrument that can hold its own in those kind of settings, right? Uh, and but it, from a concert point of view, obviously you have people like Tommy Emmanuel who who's just selling oh, out yeah, massive, massive venues. Oh, massive! And, and you know, he, his his thing is is so appealing in that because he is he's su- he's a performer, right? And he oh, yeah, yeah. he can he can put on a great show. Uh, so, so there's loads of different facets of this work, of this realm, really, of, in this kind of acoustic fingerstyle thing. And there's loads of different styles within it. It's a very broad umbrella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the percussive element of it obviously started, well, it started many, many years ago, of course, with people like Michael Hedges. But in terms of recently becoming more and more prevalent, you have players like Andy McKee, who was the first kind of YouTube hit with tunes of his like... Um, Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of it now. Um, Rylan and and pieces like that. And they're just really beautiful and well-composed things, but also incorporate all of those kind of extended techniques and very visually impressive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As well as kind of pleasant to listen to. So yeah, it's all good stuff. It's it's a lovely ecosystem, and it's it's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful thing. And there's room for so much within it, right? And and yeah. you know, some people will like the percussive thing, and some people won't, and that is fine. You know, like it's yeah. it's all whatever floats your boat. I used to do a lot of the percussive style playing, 
when I was younger, when I first started writing, that was quite a lot of quite a big part of what I did was actually because of style, particularly inspired by people like Thomas Lieb. But, um, you know, nowadays, I've kind of moved away from that. And I, I guess the thing that I've been kind of digging into myself is to do with just quality of tone and sound from, a, from an acoustic guitar and, and how lush you can get that sounding. Um, so I've kind of moved away from the because of techniques because I it just frankly because when I when I started recording myself I just didn't didn't much enjoy listening to it but and I just yeah. I was like well this is uh, from a point of view of like timbre and texture and just the quality mm. of sound I don't like this as much as I like really digging into the actual sounds that the guitar can make um for one for a better word for, for more conventional playing and and if you kind of dig into that realm in a big big way then the guitar has a lot to give as well so so there's there's so many different angles to it and it's a lovely ever expanding world where the repertoire is growing all the time. And I just think that it's a, it's a very exciting time for the acoustic guitar as an instrument, because not only is the repertoire expanding, the performance opportunities are expanding, uh, but also the actual instrument itself, you know, the, the actual guitar builders involved in um, pushing the instrument fold, uh, forward, uh, uh, that's also expanded massively as well. And there's some just tremendous builders building just the most stunning acoustic guitars now, um, which, uh, again, the idea of them being, it's no longer an accompaniment instrument. This is a solo guitar oh, that, yeah. that can, that can you know, hold its own in the same way that classical guitars famously could and can. Uh, so this one over my shoulder here, that one's my most recent one by a builder called Tom Sands, built uh, based up in Yorkshire, and you know the, the guitar is it's a, it's a sublime thing. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing that he's him and his contemporaries have been able to create these instruments that are so responsive, um, and they're just utterly addictive to play. So yeah, it's exciting. Do they create acoustic guitars specifically for fingerstyle, or can you basically play an acoustic guitar? as a fingerstyle guitar yeah i mean i think that the there there are different like acoustic guitars in general can be geared in different directions depending on what they're going to be used for right um yeah. and they can be geared in those directions um via various different means whether that be the construction style the body size and shape the materials they're constructed from um the length and positioning of the neck you know it's, it's all it all it all features in and you know quite often you know if you're if you're a if you're a singer and you want a guitar to be a great accompaniment instrument to you you know having having a guitar like a dreadnought that has lots of headroom in it yeah uh very kind of like flat balanced oh, yeah. solid sounding thing is, is a great thing to have but that doesn't necessarily yeah. mean it's a great thing for fingerstyle because quite often they are less responsive from delicate touch like for example a guitar like the one behind me is is voiced very very lightly so what that means is that everything is very very thin in comparison so as a, as a result of that fact you barely need to touch the thing and it's making noise which is great for a finger stylist because you can pull out so much tonal and dynamic variety from it in order to create a really captivating performance of instrumental you know fingerstyle guitar but it doesn't yeah. necessarily mean you know, not this is not always the case of course it different guitars and different people play in different ways but um a guitar that is really really responsive for fingerstyle playing doesn't necessarily make for a great strumming guitar um yeah. as a result of the fact that it, you might end up kind of basically reaching its limit in terms of headroom when you're really really digging in hard so yeah. 
yeah, it really there are lots of ways of gearing guitars in the direction of the player and also the style of playing. I can see over your shoulder that you do have a very nice collection of guitars. Have they been collected over the years? Even though I've got a side on view, they do just look very nice. They've, they've all got a story behind them. You know? Shiny and sparkly and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they, they've all got a story behind them, right? So, like, yeah. um, three of them are my files, which is uh, which are made by Roger Bucknell up in the Lake District, and they are utterly stunning guitars. Um, and my first kind of experience of hand-built instruments. Um, another three are the instruments from the um, builders that I was working with over in China. Um, and... St- steel string and and nylon string um, within that collection, as well as um, Rogers is a a mixture of different styles there. And then there's the, uh, and there's the resonator there as well, which is obviously just a completely different beast. Um, So, so it's, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not, I I no longer tour with multiple instruments, right? I used to tour with a couple of guitars, but nowadays I just tend to tour with one. Mm -hmm. Uh, but but they all have a special place, both musically, but also really, really like I'm, I'm. You get quite attached to them if they're if they're instruments that have that have kind of gone through something with you or have been instrumental in a per, in a particular part of your musical development. And and those ones, those ones have been for me. So as a result, they will they will be staying. They'll be staying there for a long time. So speaking of new guitar and things staying with you for a long time, what is next for you? Uh, what are your plans for the remainder of the year and going forward yeah um so uh from a release perspective i've got this project with um emily francis which is acoustic guitar with horn section that's coming to fruition very soon and i'll be getting that out there then i'll be going off on a two-week tour of germany and then later on this year we'll be i'll be going back into the studio with the string quartet and we'll be doing another album for acoustic guitar and string quartet. So that's the rest of the year. Nice. And so with the name of this thing called Reaching the Crescendo, and now it's just trying to be like a less blunt, where do you see yourself in 10 years' time, that sort of thing. So where do you want to see yourself in X years' time? Because I'm sure that 10 years ago, you probably would have hopefully seen yourself doing all the stuff you've already done. Um, mm. So where do you see yourself you know, in five ten years time yeah i mean if for, for, for me that the the whole you know the whole goals um have, have changed somewhat really to be honest mm-hmm. um i used to when i was younger i used to always kind of chase that next goal you know got to do this got to work with that person got to tour here got to do this festival the rest of it and you know i've done all of that now really mm-hmm. and i i love i will obviously continue doing so and i enjoy all of it i mean for for me now my my goals tend to be to do with just finding the right balance in life you know and it's just to do with if i can be in five years time just content with my my work and my life balance and be able to share music um with as many people as i can in as profound a way as i can while still maintaining a really nice balance between that and my time with my family and, and everything else, then I, I will be a very, very happy man. So mm. th- those are my goals, really, I suppose. They're, they are, they're, they're no longer based around milestones or numbers yeah. or whatever. It's mm-hmm. more to do with like a, just a broader 
kind of feeling of satisfaction within you know within my life so yeah that that's my plan yeah so you mentioned right at the start that you are a dad now mm-hmm. um and so has your child been interested in the instrument you play do they think that they'll be picking up a instrument <laughs> anytime soon even just to chuck a string yeah well he's certainly been doing that man whenever, whenever he's in here oh, he'll, yeah. be strum- he'll be strumming away uh yeah. for sure absolutely sometimes um with um a little bit less nuance than i would hope <laughs> but but it's uh it's 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 cool man it's just been lovely seeing him kind of develop over the last couple of years and be able to kind of just see him dance and sing and things like this is a, a really magical thing so yes i mean i you know i hope that music will become a part of his life but i'm i certainly don't have any kind of want for him to become a guitarist or become a professional <laughs> musician or anything like that he, he can do whatever yeah. frankly he can do whatever the hell he wants to do but i just i hope that he can i hope he can kind of find some sense of enjoyment from music in general because i just think that's such a such an enriching part of life that is is lovely to be be able to capitalize upon you know absolutely well will it has been a pleasure to speak to you for the hour and a bit that uh, we've been on um and it's been an achievement to speak to um to speak to someone who when i was at corf you were spoken out very highly from Mr. Coleman, who oh, yes. who was instrumental in both our times at Corf, definitely, yeah, and to, to probably one of two people who are famous from Corf <laughs> as well. So that is an achievement in itself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, great stuff, Ben. Well, look, thank you for having me on, mate. It's been a pleasure to chat to you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure, and so I'll put all your links down below, um, and hopefully keep in touch in general, and hopefully I can actually see you live in the flesh at some point soon. That'd be awesome, man. Yeah. Thanks so much, dude. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, so it's good. great. No problem at all, man. Well, Will, it's been a pleasure.